I, I want us to, to look at this phenomenal parable because what it ends up telling us is what kind of God we worship. It, it's a parable about Israel, but it really tells us about what kind of God we worship. And we, we need to back up from chapter 12 and go back into chapter 11 for just a moment because, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they would come to Jesus and they would ask him questions and ask him questions and try to trap him and, and try to, to, to confuse him as if they could have. So what we're going to look at today is not in a silo. It's in the flow of what's been happening in chapter 11. Uh, he has uh, cursed the fig tree, which is a picture of dead religion. He has talked about mountain-moving faith. He's talked about what it takes to have mountain-moving faith, and that is forgiveness. And then these guys come to him and they say, you know, Jesus, we just want to ask you, can you show us your credentials? By what authority are you doing the things you're doing? Who gave you the authority to speak and to act and to heal? And Jesus is now back at this point in the story on the temple grounds, and the religious leaders are asking him questions. Now, if anybody should have been asking questions, it should have been Jesus. I mean, he should have started when he was going up the southern steps by saying, what have you done to the place where my father is to be worshipped? What are you doing to this place? What have you done to this place? How have you made dead religion out of a living relationship? And so Jesus is being asked a question. He turns the tables on him and he asks a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now Jesus has been showing his authority all the way through chapter 11. Just look at it quickly with me if you will. He entered Jerusalem as a king. You know, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. He entered Jerusalem as a king. He cleansed the temple as a priest. And he cursed the fig tree as a prophet. So, in this one chapter that we've just come out of, he has fulfilled the three offices. Prophet, priest, king. And now... He gets a question, by what authority? And then he answers their question with a question. It's always good to answer a question with a question. A lot of times you find out what the motive of the question is. And the right answer to that question would be that they had answered their own question and would realize who he really was. So Jesus asked them this question. By what authority did John, the forerunner, the one that Jesus said was the greatest, the one who pronounced the coming of the kingdom of God, the one who said, repent. But by what authority did he act? Now he's got these religious experts trapped because if they say his authority was from God, then they also need to admit that Jesus' authority is from God. And they don't want to admit that. If they say it was from men, 
Then the people who were moved and persuaded by John and had now become followers of Jesus, then they will despise these religious leaders and, in, and, and they will lose their power. They will lose their influence. And so they, they did what any good politician does. They said, we don't know. And Jesus did what any good God would do. Then I'm not going to tell you. We don't know. And Jesus said, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Why wasn't Jesus going to tell them? They should have known. It was the fear of man and the fear of losing their position is the reason that they didn't know. And so now we come to this parable in chapter 12 about what is God like. This is a parable about God's authority. God's authority. They've asked a question about authority. Now Jesus is giving them a parable of authority of the owner of a vineyard. <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some, killing others. And he had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir, come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that the par he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Now, this hatred has been brewing toward Jesus. Remember, he's out in the wilderness. He's been healing. He's been teaching. And this hatred is brewing because they can't trap him. Uh, they've tried to push him off the cliff at Nazareth, and he just walks right past them. But when his time comes to, come to go to Jerusalem for the crucifixion, he sets his face like a flint and he heads there under God's authority, going to the cross. He knew what was ahead of him. And so this parable becomes a question of, are these guys in Jerusalem in authority or is Jesus the authority? Are these the people we need to be following? Are they following the God that they say they follow? Or are they following a God they've made in their image? It's a good question for church people to ask. Are we following a God we've made in our image? 
Are we following the God of the Word? Are we following a God that looks like us, feels like us, talks like us, likes what we like, doesn't like what we don't like, agrees with us on every situation, or are we following a God that demands that we get on our knees and bow down and call him holy? So here's this question about authority. And you see this arrogant attitude of the scribes and the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this arrogant attitude was thumping their nose at the authority of Jesus. They just, you got no authority. If you had authority, you would tell us where it came from. By the way, this is the sin of man. And it began in heaven with the sin of Satan. Satan did not want God to have authority and power and worship. And so he rebelled against him. Then he shows up at the garden and he gets Adam and Eve to rebel. Then he gets Achan to rebel and he gets the people to rebel and the kings to rebel. And they go in judgment and they repent and they're sorry. And then they come back and they begin to act the same way again. Now, after thousands of years of God speaking to his people, redeeming his people, showing his people his love watching over his people, planting them in the midst of all the nations, the least of all nations, and yet he honors them as his people, his light to the nations. They're rejecting his son. You see, sin is an expression of arrogance and pride. Their sin was their arrogance and pride. You, you know why people won't get saved? They have too much pride to make a public confession of Christ. You know why people won't get saved? It's because they have too much pride. They, they think they're better than other people. And they may be better than some other people. But pride will keep you from the cross. Pride needs to be put on the cross. And we need to die to pride. You see, when we think we can act any way we want to toward God, then we are full of pride. When we think that Following God is a multiple option, multiple choice, cafeteria line. Then something's wrong with us. Uh, several years ago, we were, we were at the Cove, and uh, we were there to hear Jim Cimbala. And I love Jim Cimbala. He's one of my favorite people on the planet. And, and so he was speaking, and Terry and I were sitting on the second row, and uh, only because I had the first row reserved. We were sitting on the second row. And he leaned back and he said, meet me at the drive-thru as soon as the service is over. I said, okay. Let me just, just give you a word here. When the pastor of one of the greatest churches in the world tells you to meet him somewhere, just go. You never know what it's going to be. And, and the Cove has great food. I mean, they, I love the Cove. I, I love to go there. I've, I've spoken there. I, I love to go to the Cove. But, but I meet him, and he says, okay, we're going to go to this cafeteria. He said, you're not going to believe this cafeteria. He said, they, they have like these little old ladies with nets on their heads. And, and they have like salads, like you can get like any kind of salad you want to get. And then you, you get any kind of vegetables, as much as you want to get. And they put them in these little bowls and they keep passing it down the line, you know. And in the South, we know what that is. That's Morrison's Cafeteria or Piccadilly. But they don't have those in Brooklyn. And, and so he just, he's going down the line just getting this food and everything. And he said, Michael, you just, you can't believe you can get anything you want. 
And I said, you know, you, you got some great restaurants in Brooklyn. He said, not like this. You see, some of us approach our faith like a cafeteria line. Yeah, I like that. Uh, the carrot and raisin, I don't want it. See, Chick-fil-A even did away with carrot and raisin salad. Uh, I, I, I don't want that. I, I don't want, no, not the green jello, the orange jello. I want that. No, no, not the liver and onions. Don't want the liver and onions. Do want the roast beef. In fact, I'll also take a piece of fried chicken and, a, ooh, desserts. I got so many desserts. Okay, I want the lemon pie and I want the chocolate cake. No, I don't want the others. I'm trying to cut back. You see, sometimes we treat God like that, like we can pick and choose what we think about him, who he is, and what he expects of us. And so, what kind of God are we answering to? Number one, we're answering to a God that we can trust. We're answering to a God that we can trust. You say, well, God doesn't understand. He, does, he understands and he knows. We operate on a template of trust that God has entrusted us with truth, that he has entrusted us with his son, that he has given us the way to salvation. We are trustees of truth. Now, one of the things we need to remember is we are entrusted by a God we can trust with things. Money, time, Talent, resources, a house, car, clothes, jobs, gifts, talents that we are not the owners of. You say, well, I own my car. It's paid for. Who gave you the money to do it? Well, I work for this company that gave me the money. Who, who gave it to them? You see, God is the ultimate source of everything. Every dollar you have, every roof over your head, every breath you take, God is the source, and you can trust him that he knows what's best for you. So the God we worship is a God that we can trust. I, I thought the other day, you know, I've been entrusted to be the pastor of this church for over 30 years. I've done a really good job of that about five of those 30 years. But at the end of the day, I'm an interim pastor. Because one day somebody will follow me. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Because nobody's going to be pastor forever. So every pastor is an interim pastor. You say, well, I've been a Sunday school teacher here. You're an interim. You're an interim. Somebody will take your place one day. Now, you shouldn't quit before you're supposed to, but somebody will take your place one day. You see, you're filling a seat. You're an interim in that seat. One day you'll be gone. Somebody else will fill that seat. Can you trust a God that knows better than you about what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it and how you're supposed to do it? God has entrusted us. He has given us something. What did he give Israel? A name a land, the law, the prophets. That was their vineyard to keep, to maintain, to show to the world. And it's a sin 
to be a trustee and yet act like you're the owner. You see, I'm a trustee of the pulpit of this church, but I don't own the pulpit of this church. God owns it. It's his pulpit. You're a trustee as a member of this church, but you don't own this church. You're a trustee of it. And in this season, you've been entrusted by God to support it, to pray for it, to serve it, to give to it, and to love it. Not the owner. People say, nobody's going to do my church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's his church. We have a God we can trust. Secondly, we have a patient God. A patient God. Uh, anybody here have a problem with impatience? Just everybody in this room is lying except for about 10 people. Hey, I can, I can test your patience. I'll put you at a stoplight and the turn signal comes, a turn light comes on and the car in front is texting and they're not moving. I'll tell you how much patience you got. Move it! We have a patient God. Can I tell you something? If I'd been God, Jerry Clare used to say, I wish God would just let me be God for five minutes. I could fix a lot of things that bother him. If I'd been God and I sent one person and they killed him, I wouldn't send anybody else. Or if I sent anybody else, I'd send in the Marines. And I'd clear that vineyard out. Those people wouldn't be squatting on my land anymore. But God is patient. I wouldn't continue to let people treat people like that. But here's a patient God, 2 Peter 3.8. But do you not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's a story told of an atheist, Robert Ingersoll, who was lecturing and he took out his watch and he said, I'll give God five minutes to strike me down for the things that I've said. And a pastor in the back of the room stood up and said, did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God by his words? You see, there's a limit to God's patience. You shouldn't test it, but he is patient. He's slow to anger. He's kind. He's loving. I mean, would you have let Israel run on a leash as long as they did in rejecting the prophets? I wouldn't have. But that's what this parable says. God keeps sending prophets and preachers to Israel, and they keep killing them, and they keep beating them up, and God's patient with them because he's made a covenant with them. Thirdly, he's a merciful God. He's a merciful God. Did Israel deserve to be the apple of God's eye? No. Did the least deserve to be the greatest in the eyes of God, Israel? No. Did they deserve the land? No. Did they deserve deliverance out of Egypt? No. Did they deserve deliverance out of Babylon? No. 
Did they deserve a Messiah? No. But God was merciful. And he gave them what they didn't deserve. Not so that Israel could be messengers of the law, but so that they could be messengers of his mercy. So that Israel could say to the great nations of the world, we were nobodies. God just picked this guy, Abraham, out of nowhere and sent him on a journey and gave him a son that it was impossible for him to have and gave him a nation that could not be numbered like the stars. We were nobody. That's how great God is. And God gave us this hymn book that has 150 hymns in it, written by our King David, most of them. And we sing songs to him, and we see him in creation, and we see him in the sacrifices. And one day he's going to bring Messiah. And yet when Messiah came, they said to a merciful God, we will show no mercy toward your son. I want you to think about that. The nation that for generations had been shown unmerited favor, the mercy of God, showed no mercy toward his son. Israel is that vineyard, that nation that's been set aside, that's had a tower built. God has been their protection. God has given them fruit. But you cannot forget that the same God that is a God of mercy is also a God of justice. And so fourthly, he is a God with a plumb line, a standard for judgment. I mean, the amazing thing about this parable is that how patient God really is. The amazing thing to me is how patient God is with me. Does it ever amaze you? Have you just ever stopped and sat down and took a deep breath and asked yourself, why would God be so patient with you? He doesn't have to be. He chooses to be. He's merciful. He's patient. And so the owner says, I got it. I know how to get them to pay attention. I'll send my beloved son. And they'll respect him. And the son shows up and they say, here's the heir. If we kill him, this is what they're saying. If we kill the son, we can keep going on having our way in God's land. We can keep having our way in God's land. We can still, we can set the money changers back up. We can still have a corrupt high priest. We can still have a system that treats and oppresses the people. Jesus had said in the Gospel of Matthew that they lay heavy burdens on the people. And he wasn't talking about the Romans. He was talking about the religious leaders laying heavy burdens. They could never please the religious leaders. And he sends his son and they reject him. And right out of this, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 about the stone that's been rejected. By the way, they would sing that psalm about the stone that is rejected in just a matter of days at the Passover. 
This is sanctified speculation, but I, I think it's good speculation. If you go into Israel and you go, and as, we, as we've gone every time we've taken a group there, and you go down through the rabbi's tunnel, you're actually down 20. To, Jerusalem has been built and rebuilt 25 times through history. And you go down through the rabbi's tunnel, and you go by the closest place to what possible location of the Holy of Holies, and it's this narrow tunnel, 25 layers below the main streets of Jerusalem today, and you come to the end of that tunnel, and there's this carved stone that's carved on most of its sides, but not on one side. The stone that has been rejected by the builders. A visible reminder in the rabbi's tunnel that the one great rabbi was killed by the priest and the Levites and you and me, the sinless son of God who came into his vineyard to say, this vineyard is mine and I'm looking for worship. And they said, tell you what we'll do, we'll just kill you. You see, the stone is an image that's found in the Pentateuch in Exodus 17, in Daniel chapter 2, 34, in Zechariah 4, 7, in Romans 9, 32 and 33, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. It's a picture of Messiah. It's the image, the image of the stone pointed people to Messiah, and they distorted the picture, and they killed the Son. The Son was sent by the Father. He was rejected and killed. The stone was carved and it was rejected by the builders. So don't miss this. This is what Jesus is doing. He is indirectly answering the question from chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Here's what Jesus is doing. This is the God we can trust, the patient God, the merciful God who has a plumb line. He says, you want to know about authority? I'll tell you about authority. I am God. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of the Most High. I am the Son of the owner of this vineyard, and I am the rightful heir. And I gave you a law, and you have rejected it. I sent you prophets, and you ignored them and killed them. I have come and found that you've made laws of your own that have nothing to do with my laws. You've developed systems that have nothing to do with true worship and sacrifice. And I know because I came from heaven that you are about to put me on a cross outside the city, outside the vineyard, if you will. To be crucified among thieves. The stone which the builders have rejected will be the chief cornerstone of the church that God will build and one day come back for. You will beat me, you will sentence me to death, and I will be outside, but you will not have the last word. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the grave. Can I tell you something? At that point, I think they should have repented. They just withdrew. They just withdrew until they could figure out 
how to kill him. They just backed away. Why? Because they had begun to think that all that was going on and all that they were doing was about them. Now, they would acknowledge, God, oh, God, this is for you. Lord, this lamb is for you. But they'd bring a blemished lamb. This dove is for you. But they they would bring a, a dove that had a broken wing. Malachi makes all these accusations about what the people were doing 400 years before God went silent. And God's been silent for 400 years. Now he shows up in his son, the manifestation of every prophecy of Messiah. And they say, eh, it's not him. It's not him. Because if it is him, then it messes up our system. It messes up our status quo. Can I tell you something? Some of us would rather kill God by our indifference and by our religion than to surrender to him. That's why churches are filled with lost church members. Because they will never bring themselves to acknowledge that their pride is that I think I'm good enough on my terms to do what I want to do and God has to love me and God has to let me into heaven. I can tell you right now that there are people that think I'm going to be so good God could not keep me out of heaven. Oh, yes, he can. I mean, you can win the Good Servant Award at every club in town and bust hell wide open. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. He's merciful and he's patient and he puts up with you thinking that way all the time, sending his Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. You see, Jesus was killed in a place where he should have been worshiped. You say, I don't understand that. You ever been in a business meeting in a Baptist church? A lot of Baptist churches have killed Jesus in a business meeting. They've killed his reputation in a community. They've killed his name in a community. Jesus was killed where he should have been worshipped, and one day he will reign where he was rejected. You can't come here. You can't say that. You can't do that. We're going to run this. We're going to kill you. But one day he's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule in a new Jerusalem. He's not going to rule in a new Albany. There's a specific place where he will reign and rule in a new heaven and a new earth, in a new Jerusalem. Matthew's account, Jesus asked the question of these scribes, and in that account, Jesus tells the story and says, now what would the owner of the vineyard do? And Matthew records, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. And that's what God did. God still loves Israel. God still has a covenant with Israel. But God has a new covenant with the church. We're a people of a new covenant. God has made a covenant with his people. We are the church, his people. And the, the Jews rejected the Christ that Gentiles around the world embraced in the Roman Empire. J.B. Phillips said, Remember that the powers that be will soon be the powers that have been. Ezekiel the prophet said, I will overturn, overturn, overturn until he shall come whose right it is to reign. 
So they asked the question, by whose authority? Who told you you could talk? Who told you you could speak? Who told you you could work miracles? Who told you, you that you could teach? Who told you you could raise the dead? Who told you that you could pronounce that you have victory over death and hell and the grave? Who do you think you are, boy? You're just some kid from Nazareth. And Jesus came out of the grave, and before he left, he turned to people like you and me and said, I tell you what authority, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And I'm sending you in my authority to tell the world that I am the risen king. Now somebody ought to get happy. By what authority? All authority. He has authority over everything we fear. He has authority over every nation. He has authority over death and hell and the grave. I'd say that's all authority. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, now don't go too far because my authority doesn't extend over there. You'll be an illegal immigrant. All authority in heaven and on earth. Go to the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, and share good news. Now, I don't really have time to do the next four points. Y'all were really slow listeners today. Either that or I've repeated myself a lot because my head is spinning. I'm not sure which one. Let me just give you the points because some of you will be freaked out if you don't get the points. I mean, you're just, you just, I don't care if I hear the sermon, just give me the points. So here are the points. This is what follows in verse 14 and through most of the rest of the chapter. The Herodians and Pharisees came with flattery but lacked sincerity. Hey, who do we pay? Should we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's under God, that which is God? And teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. They didn't believe it. They didn't mean it. They were just trying to trap him. You see, they wanted to trap Jesus. The Sadducees, this was a, by the way, the Sadducees are sad, you see. Now, some of you didn't laugh, but you're going to tell somebody tomorrow at work. <laughs> the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, fabricated this crazy story about the resurrection. This, this guy marries this woman, and, and her husband dies. She marries a brother. She marries another brother, marries another brother, marries a, and she, seven. Who's, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, I'm the God of the, of the living not the dead. I'm the God of the living. I, I Dennis Swanberg tells a story about a guy that went to heaven and his wife was terrible. His wife was terrible, terrible. I mean, bad, mean, mean. Kind of like John Wesley's wife, mean. And so he goes to the throne and he says, Jesus, I just want to ask you something. Is there marrying in heaven? And Jesus says, no, you know there's no marrying in heaven. Read the Bible. You know there's no marrying in heaven. You know, we just, it's bigger than that. And the guy goes, thank you, Jesus. He's walking down the streets of gold. 
and he sees his wife, and he walks up to her, and he goes, Sadducees are asking a question. First of all, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to embarrass Jesus. They were by nature worldly and materialistic. And and to summarize Jesus' response, here's what Jesus said to them in the cat paraphrase. Obviously, you guys don't read your Bible. That's basically what he said. Obviously, you guys don't read your Bible or you wouldn't have asked me this question. Then there's this seeker. This is where I want to wrap it up. The seeker comes in verses 28 through 34, and he wanted to get to the bottom line. What what is it, Jesus? What's the bottom line? And you know what the bottom line is. It's right there. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, it's not about the law, it's about love. Because sin is not so much against the law, it's against God's love. Obedience is not so much about keeping the law, it is about loving the God who gave us away to live and to walk. And Jesus says to this man, look at your Bible, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now would you write something in your Bible right there? Not far, but not in. He could quote the two greatest commandments, not far, but not in. Can I submit to you that there are members of this church and of every church that can quote things in the Bible that are not far from the kingdom, but they're not in. They know it up here. They know it in their head but it's never gotten in their heart. They know facts. They know doctrine. They can teach. They can study. They can decipher. But in their heart, there's there's no love. No love for Jesus. Not far, but not in. You see, this man agreed with Jesus in his mind, but he couldn't go with Jesus to the cross. Can I tell you something? You can be in a room where the presence of Jesus is as thick as a knife and miss him. And miss him. So two last questions. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? Because if he's your Lord, that's what what this means. That you are a trustee of the time, the talent, the gifts, the abilities, your, your money, your resources, your family, your job, your reputation. You're a steward. You're a trustee of that. You don't own it. He owns you. He's your Lord. And if he is your Lord, do you love him? Do you love him? And when's the last time you told him? Father, we come today realizing that we can know a lot about you and not know you. I pray for anyone in this room today that has a knowledge of you without a relationship that you would convict of sin 
You've been patient. You've been merciful. Lord, we can trust you for salvation. We can trust you with our eternity. We can trust you with our future. And Lord, I pray that today, uh, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that, that you would take their heart and lead them to that next step desk to make a decision for Christ that is life-changing. Not just in a moment, but a lifetime. Lord, that you would remind us that we are stewards of these mysteries. We are stewards of these truths. And we have to share with a lost world that all authority has been given to Jesus. And one day, every authority and every nation and every leader will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, some willingly and lovingly, others out of acknowledgement that they were wrong in this life and that God was right all along. Lord, save the lost and stir the saved to deeper love. In Jesus' name, amen.